0: Apostle Paul writes in the first chapter of his letter to the church at Corinth, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that not, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. He writes there to that church, and I would say by extension, generally, to the churches of Jesus Christ through the centuries. And if we could boil it all down, it's simply this you're a nobody. I heard that, and I will. We are essentially nobodies, and that's okay. Actually, it's good that we're nobodies, because then God gets all the glory that he so rightfully deserves in our salvation. Newsflash. I was reading this morning on the list of the wealthiest men in the world, and noticed that the majority of the list are made up of people who own, essentially, substantial stakes in software companies. And uh, apparently, the head of Amazon is uh, soon to become rocketing to the top of the list. But here's the newsflash. You will never be a billionaire. Okay? You will never be a billionaire. The fact of the matter is, is that you will likely never be a millionaire. But don't let that get you down. You have an inheritance in Jesus Christ set aside for you that surpasses anything the world can offer. Anything. Let Bezos keep his $80 billion dollars. You have Jesus Christ, and in that, there is nothing more that we could want. Open your Bibles up to the first chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, we're returning now to the third of our messages here from verses 11 through 14. And have entitled this series of messages, The Seven Jewels of Our Inheritance. Seven jewels that appear for us here in verses 11 through 14. Jewels that display the beauty and wonder of that divine inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me go ahead and read it for us and we'll dive in. Paul writes, in him, that is in Christ. In Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory." Seven jewels that comprise the inheritance that Paul spells out for us here. And we have been looking at them and so quickly to just review them and pick it up here. We said first, the first jewel was our inheritance is the shared right of the firstborn. The shared right of the firstborn. And we see it in verse 11 where Paul says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. That is in union with Christ. We share in the inheritance of Christ. Christ, the recipient of the portion, the double portion of the firstborn. That abundance that is his, we share because we are his brothers in Christ. Christ conquered sin, death, and decay, and we share in his conquest. Secondly, our inheritance rests upon the Father's initiative. Again, verse 11, where Paul writes, having been predestined, having been predestined. Said another way, my friends, while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God in his great mercy extended himself to us, graciously opening our eyes, drawing us to him, flooding our hearts with faith and love for Christ, that we might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The inheritance, the initiative of that inheritance rests with God. Not with us. Third, our inheritance reflects the Father's meticulous planning and control. Again, verse 11, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We noted the words purpose and works and counsel and will. Those terms speak of the, of the Father's intelligent design in all of this. That he planned this all before the foundation of the world. And it issues forth in his will. And that will encompasses, Paul says, all things. All things. There are no stray molecules in the universe. All things fall under the Father's will and plan for his children. Fourth, our inheritance is claimed by believing the gospel. Down to verse 13. You also, after listening to the message of truth, Paul says, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. We looked at this and we said, made the the observation that predestination, wonderful as it is and it is, does not save. Predestination does not save. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. We must believe the gospel in order to be saved. And in fact, that gospel Paul speaks of here, he calls it the message of truth. And we noted last time that 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 means reality. It corresponds to reality. It is as the world actually is. It is a historical reality. Jesus Christ came, lived, died, was buried, rose again the third day, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. That is a historical reality, and when we believe upon that reality and its implications for our life, we are saved. Fifth, our inheritance places us in a multi-ethnic family. This is where we left off last time. Our inheritance places us in a multi-ethnic family. And we observe there in verses 12 through 14 the pronouns that Paul uses, where he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. They're identifying himself and the Jewish believers. They were the first to hope in Christ. And he goes on to say, you also were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. They're speaking to the Gentiles, who are the recipients of this letter, who is given as a pledge, and then Paul wraps it together, of our inheritance. So you see, we, you, Those are the three pronouns that we observed last time, and and said that we believe that what Paul is communicating here is something very, very profound. In fact, it will occupy the good bit of the next chapter, and even into the third chapter. And that is the reality that Jew and Gentile share equally in the work of Christ. That there is no advantage to being a Jew any longer. But a Jew and Gentile on equal footing, all is level at the foot of the cross, come together through Christ to become one new man, one body. And we looked last time at Acts and the reality there of where it says the, uh, the Holy Spirit of promise, that is the promised Holy Spirit, and the, and the prophecies of Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2 that speak of the coming Spirit who brings with him the age to come and salvation. And that the Jews receive the Spirit and the Gentiles receive the Spirit in the same way, indicating that they are united in one body, a multi-ethnic body. And that is a jewel for us to treasure. That takes us to the sixth and new material for this morning. Six, our inheritance is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Sixth jewel, our inheritance is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, where he says, You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Now let me just make a statement here with regard to the last part there of verse 14. You'll notice in the New American Standard, that the, uh, the words God's own are in italics. If you have a New American Standard Bible, you should see them in italics. And what that means is they are not there in the original Greek text. But the translators believe they're implied by the text, and so they insert it for readability purposes. But I have to take exception with them here, because I don't think they got it right here. And in fact, I think the, uh, the English Standard Version is much closer to the reality of what is being communicated here in the original Greek. And so they would translate it this way or something like this you were sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise who is given to us as a pledge of our inher- or, yes is given to us as the pledge of our inheritance or guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it that's the part i'm looking for okay so not until with a view to the redemption of god's own possession but until we acquire possession of it acquire possession of what acquire possession of our inheritance In other words, our inheritance is guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit. We have been talking here in the first first five jewels about how amazing this inheritance is, but but what if somehow we were to miss out on it? What if somehow when when the reading of the will came, we found out that we were cut out? How terrible it would be. But that is not something we need to fear because God's own spirit Third person of the triune Godhead himself guarantees that we will receive the inheritance in due time. So specifically here, Paul is introducing the third person of the Godhead and his role in redemption. So he began, back up in verse 3 and 4 and following, with the father's role. And then he introduced the role of the son. And now here he introduces the role of the spirit. This is a very Trinitarian passage looking at the the role of the members of the Godhead in securing redemption for the people of God. And what Paul speaks of here, he says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is, is given as a pledge of our inheritance. He's speaking of that reality that at the moment one places saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become an immediate possessor of the Spirit of God. That is, the Spirit of God takes up residence within us. And in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul speaks of that event there, and he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. In other words, at that moment in time, it doesn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Greek, it doesn't matter whether you were slave or free, You could add to that, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female or wealthy or poor or or intellectual or average. None of that matters. All were made to drink of that one spirit. We become that one body of the receipt of the Holy Spirit of God at the moment of redemption. Now here in Ephesians, Paul uses a couple of metaphors. A couple of metaphors here. He speaks about sealing and he speaks about a pledge. You see it there at the end of verse 13. He talks about being sealed in him. And then in verse 14 he talks about the pledge. Now these two metaphors are drawn out of the realm of law and commerce. Common terms drawn from the realms of law and commerce. And they are used to speak about the Holy Spirit's role in our redemption. He, he, not it. Spirit of God is he. He is a personal pronoun. He is, he is every bit God, as is the Father and the Son. So He's not an it. He's not an impersonal force. God himself, in the person of his Spirit, seals us and is our pledge. He seals us, and he is our pledge. So what does this mean, sealing? What is, what is all that about? Well, the word sealing, a Greek word, Translated here in English, sealing speaks to an activity that we can relate to. Just just like today, in ancient times, a sealing was a way to guarantee authenticity. It was a guarantee of authenticity. It was a, a mark of ownership. So, for example, cargos were sealed. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen cargo trains or, or even... Um, even over the road trucks, when they close them up, they'll put a, they'll put some, uh, like a zip tie, a special zip tie, a seal on the doors. And that says that that cargo it, uh, belongs to a certain person and it's not tampered with. If the seal is broken, it's been tampered with. So, cargoes are sealed. Letters are sealed. You know, you pour wax on the envelope and you take your signet ring and you stick it in there and you seal your letter. That kind of an idea. Livestock are sealed. Right? You heat the branding iron and you stick it in the flank and it, it seals them. It marks them. It guarantees their ownership and their authenticity. Even personal possessions are sealed. I have a book stamp. And so every book in my office, I take this embosser and I squeeze it and it says, from the library of you know, David Forsyth. And so when you borrow my book and don't return it, and every time you open it and look at it, the Spirit of God will convict you. <laughs> that you have stolen my book, <laughs> right? So we have, the, we have a book seal, right? It's the same kind of idea. But here, Paul says the Spirit himself is the seal. Not that he, that he seals us, but he is the seal. He is the mark of authenticity, the mark of ownership. In other words, what Paul is trying to say to us here is that, is that by giving the Holy Spirit to the believer at the moment of conversion, the Father marks them out as his own. He marks them out as his own. He embosses his name upon them. In other words, the possession of the Spirit is the sign that a person belongs to God. It is thus entitled to receive their share of the family inheritance brought about by their union in Christ. Notice Paul says that we were sealed in him, the end of verse 13. Okay, We were sealed in him. Paul says over in Romans 8, 9, <clears throat> that he who has the Spirit is the child of God. He who does not have the Spirit is not of God. Okay? It is the Spirit, the possession of the Spirit, that is the unique mark of one's possession by God. Secondly, Paul speaks about a pledge. He says it was given as... A pledge of our inheritance. The word pledge here carries the idea of a deposit or a down payment or what we might know as earnest money. Earnest money, right? So what's a down payment all about? What's what's earnest money all about? It, It is a guarantee that once you've signed a contract that you will follow through and you will complete the contract that you've signed. You will fulfill the obligation that you have made. We see it most commonly, of course, in the housing market, right? If you want to purchase a home, you have to make a down payment. First, you put forth some earnest money to, in order to buy or the seller knows you're serious. You negotiate a price. Then you have to make a down payment and then the lending and all the rest of that. Or another way is in the realm of, of uh, matrimony. When a young man uh, finds that special young woman who he wants to spend the rest of his life with, and he says, will you marry me, if he's serious about it all, then he has in his possession, what? Something very expensive. That's right. The bigger, the better. Right, ladies? The commitment that he's serious, he's going to follow through on this. It is the pledge. It is the... It is the. Um, engagement ring so what Paul's saying here is he's given the spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance what he is really saying is that the receipt of the spirit at the moment of salvation is the father's guarantee that the inheritance that we are entitled to will be delivered to us at the proper time okay, at the proper time so the immediate presence of the spirit at the moment of salvation it does two things Just kind of reviewing here. Two things for us. It marks us out as God's children. That's the sealing. It marks us out as God's children. And thus, entitles us to the inheritance. That's our legal entitlement to the inheritance. The sealing. The receipt of the Spirit also assures us that at the second coming, when the will is read, so to speak, we won't be left out. That's the pledge idea. You can think of it this way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. That is, when the will is read, we're going to be up yonder with the Lord. And that reality is is assured to us by the indwelling Spirit of God himself, who is the pledge that at the second coming of Christ, when the will is read, your name will be there. Now, this is probably as good a place as any to take a detour. The technical term is an excursus. Others know it as a rabbit trail. But I think it's significant enough and fits in with what we're talking about enough to take the time to go ahead and do it. The receipt of the Spirit of God at the moment of conversion creates one family of God, that multi-ethnic family. What I want to do with you is I want, to, I want to look at the book of Acts. So I'm going to turn you to the book of Acts and specifically chapter 2 to start. Because there's a lot of confusion about speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. So just briefly, I want to, I want to address the tongues speaking in the book of Acts. What is it all about? What is it all about? And what it is all about is that, that it is a physical phenomena that, that testifies to the spiritual reality that various people, groups have received the same spirit and are thus one in one body, the body of Christ. That's what it's about. It demonstrates there is only one universal, multi-ethnic church. So let me show you something here. We're just going to look at at four passages pretty quickly. Chapter 2, the day of Pentecost... Verse 5, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, right? So they're from all over the place. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And then it spells out from the, all over the, the ancient world where these Jewish people were drawn from. So the Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, and they evidence the receipt of the Spirit in the speaking in other languages, popularly known as speaking in tongues. Okay? This group, notice where it says, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? These are the apostles who are speaking. These are the apostles who are speaking. That's That's the they who are speaking here. It starts with the apostles. Uh, John himself says in 1 John, our fellowship is with the Father. And you can have fellowship with the Father too if you join in fellowship with us. In other words, the apostles are oriented and in fellowship with the Father, and we become in fellowship with the Father too when we become in fellowship with them. That is when we follow after their teaching. So the first to speak in tongues here are the apostles themselves, evidencing the Spirit. Now, take a, take a stroll to the right here to, uh, to chapter 8. Here in chapter 8, we have the preaching of the gospel in Samaria. The Samaritans were an ancient people who were basically the leftover remnant of the ten northern tribes mixed in with Gentiles who had been who had been imported in there by the Assyrians, and so they had interbred with one another and they had formed this group that was neither Jewish nor Gentile, but it was sort of a kind of this mutt group of uh, people, and they were, in terms of in the Jewish eye, they they were despised and outcast. But the gospel goes to Samaria, and it is preached there, and they believe. Now, we got a real problem here. Something doesn't happen immediately, and that is we're going to have a Jewish church and we're going to have a Samaritan church. And that would completely confuse and conflate the image of the one body of Christ and a universal church. So, something has to happen to show everyone that the Samaritans, who are formerly far away outcasts, are now on equal footing with the Jews. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now in verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent them Peter and John. Notice they sent the apostles there. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said, May your gold perish with you. Something happened. Something happened when they received the Spirit, such that Simon could observe it and he wanted to buy it. Just hang on to that thought. Turn over to chapter 10. We'll pick it up in verse 44. Chapter 10 is Cornelius. Remember Cornelius. He was, the, he was the Roman centurion, so he is the representative of the Gentiles, a group that is obviously far separated from the God of Israel, despised. Yet he calls for Peter. Peter comes, begins to preach the gospel to him, and then a most amazing thing happens, right? begin in verse 44, chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ And they asked him to stay on for a few days. So there, when the Gentiles, represented here in Cornelius, received the Spirit, the evidence of their receipt of the Spirit is what? It is the speaking in tongues. It is that phenomena that occurs, the speaking in tongues. All right? Go all the way over to Acts 19. And By the way, these are the only examples in the book of Acts covering 30 years where tongue speaking is spoken of. Acts 19, we have that very enigmatic encounter here with Paul when he comes to Ephesus and he he encounters some disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 1 It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Eh, That's a weak translation. I think what they should say, what it should say is, we haven't even heard that the Spirit has been given. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and they were in all about 12 men. These were some of the remaining disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the front runner of the Messiah. And, they, and he went, right, to prepare the way. And so he had his disciples. And those disciples had been scattered around the, the ancient world. And so they, too, uh, and I think well represent, you might say, the Old Testament seeker, the one who was seeking, you know, after waiting for the, for the Messiah to come. They, too, now that Messiah has come, are, are part, when they believe, become part of the body of Christ. And so they too, right, the gospel is preached to them, they believe, they are baptized by an apostle, and they evidence the receipt of the Spirit by speaking in tongues. I would argue that the Samaritans, that which Simon wanted to purchase, was the power to bestow the Spirit, and the evidenced by the speaking in tongues there among the Samaritans. So I know the text doesn't say that explicitly. I think it's implicit when you read all of these other passages. The conclusion when you pull all this together is that of the four examples of tongue speaking in the book of Acts, they are for each of the representative groups of the of the world, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, and and. Old Testament seeker, as it were, are brought together into one body, the church, the body of Jesus Christ. And each of these representative groups illustrates that through the speaking in tongues. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 and 22, he says, Tongue speaking is a sign for the unbeliever. What is the sign? The sign is a sign of judgment for Israel. That's verse 21, 1 Corinthians 14. A sign of judgment for Israel. That is, you have have turned from your own Messiah. And now the message is going widely throughout the world. And it is a sign of inclusion of Gentiles. That is tongue speaking in the New Testament in a nutshell. In a nutshell. So... Let's get back onto the main path. As six jewels, our inheritance is guaranteed by the Spirit. That takes us to our seventh. Our seventh jewel this morning from this text is that our inheritance maximizes the Father's glory. Back to Ephesians 1 our inheritance maximizes the Father's glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks and answers this question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is a jewel. That is a treasure to be able to glorify God and enjoy his presence forever. And so our inheritance here maximizes the Father's glory, and in that we rejoice and find great value. It is a jewel. It is a jewel. What I want you to see here is notice in verse 12, we see the expression, to the praise of his glory. Paul says that the purpose here, or the end for which those who were the first to hope in Christ were chosen, would be to the praise of the Father's glory. You see it in verse 12. To that end, to that purpose, we, that is the Jewish believers who were the who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of the Father's glory. Then notice verse 14, where he says here that, that the inclusion of the Gentiles into that one family and their sealing with the Spirit is for the same purpose, into verse 14, to the praise of the Father's glory. When we look at that, there we see, beloved, an unmistakable reality. The unmistakable reality is that the father's decision to share the son's inheritance with both Jew and Gentile on equal footing directs all eyes towards him in reverence and all tongues toward him in praise. The eulogy begins back in verse 3 with Paul's spontaneous outpouring of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then beginning in verse 4 and running all the way through here to the end of verse 14 Paul introduces us to those wonderfully mysterious humbling and soul satisfying works of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And planning and and bringing about the creation of the church. And it's all to the praise of his glory. Paul has introduced a number of themes here in these verses. We've been at this now for a few months, right? Verses 4 to 14. And he has introduced all kinds of, of themes here, and he's going to pick them up, and he's going to expand on them, it's so not the last you're gonna hear about these things, because Paul is gonna he's gonna come back to them and he's gonna and he's gonna hammer the nails harder and he's gonna he's gonna draw it out more widely in the rest of this letter.